Amen. Good morning. Oh, guys, it's great to be together. Um, you could have done a thousand different things this morning, uh, but for some reason, you came to church. Who came here because you wanted to come to church this morning? Who came here because somebody drug you to church this morning? Let's be honest. Let's be honest, okay? Uh, oh, yeah. Half of you guys are lying, but it's okay. We'll, 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 we'll get there. Uh, open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have a physical Bible, pull out your phone or your pad that you brought and uh, find your favorite Bible app and uh, pull up Jonah chapter 3. It's a difficult one to find, but I trust that you can use that, that uh, table of contents in the front. Uh, here, here's, let me give you the main thing as we start this morning, okay? God doesn't need us to be great. Isn't that like relieving? Like God doesn't need us to be great. He already does that in us if we're in Christ. He does, like he's great. He makes us great. He doesn't need you personally to be great. He just wants you to be obedient. Doesn't need you to be great. Doesn't need you to be perfect. Doesn't need you to be polished and get everything right. He just needs you to be obedient. Here's what happens. Sometimes we're so stinking paralyzed from doing anything for what feels significant for God because we are afraid that we are going to mess up that we're not going to say the right thing, that we're going to blow the opportunity. And so we just don't take it. And so what God does is a lot of times he just tees things up and he puts it there like, man, just knock this out of the park. And then we are afraid to jump into it because we don't want to mess up or blow it. And so we've got to know day in and day out that God doesn't need us to be great. He just needs us to walk with him obediently and faithfully. If you're new here, we're in a series in the book of Jonah, and we've seen Jonah, who we've kind of already dubbed as the naughty prophet, okay? He just doesn't do things right like what a prophet should do. Um, last week, we saw Jonah running away from God, stiff-necked, no remorse, eyes set to Tarshish, trying to go to the end of the world, trying to run away from God, doing everything that he, everything that he could to do that. He has back turned towards God, and he has zero plans of ever returning back to God. He is, in a very real sense, he is running away. And to be honest, this is pretty easy for us to relate with, right? Because some passages you kind of dig around in and you feel like you've got to dig real deep in order to get some type of direct correlation to your life. Like, how am I supposed to apply this? This is really difficult. But then you have something like this. This is really just kind of sitting there on the top for us. Like, okay, I got it. It's clear. What am I supposed to, like, okay. Because who in here hasn't had these moments when God has called us to something and we just run the opposite direction. Is there anybody in here who hasn't done that? Uh, I would say no. Who in here hasn't um, stopped doing something that God has told us to stop doing at some point? Who hasn't been told to start something and we haven't started it? Who hasn't run a different direction when God has said, stop, don't go this direction, and we just blow straight through all the roadblocks? Uh, who hasn't worked on our family when God has said, work on your family, who hasn't stopped running when we are, are in this perpetual, I'm just going to run and go off and do my own thing? Who hasn't said, I'm sorry, when God has said, say you're sorry? Who hasn't forgiven when God has called you to forgive one another? And yet at the end of the day, sometimes we have chosen just to disregard what he had to say, what he asked us to do. And then we go in the complete opposite direction. And we're not proud of it, right? Like, I don't think any of us are proud of it when we run the opposite direction. I hope not, but it happens, doesn't it? And when we crack open the book of, of Jonah here, this is what we see happening. Jonah is living our story. 
He's living your story. He's living my story. And it's happening on the pages of scripture right in front of us. It just doesn't have our name at the top of it. It just get, happens to say Jonah. And it's easy to point at Jonah and be like, gosh, what are you doing? Like, how could you do something like that? Are you blind? Do you not know what you're doing? Why are you running away from or why are you trying to run away from a holy God? And it's easy for us to start pointing fingers until we see that we've been there too. And we need grace and we need forgiveness too. Now for us who have been here for a while, just a quick review. Um, why is Jonah running here, right? Why, why, is, why is he running? Well, since you're not gonna answer, I'll answer. Um, remember, he, he's having a pity party. He's having a pity party for himself because he's pounding like, God gave me a mission and I didn't wanna do what he told me to do. Like God gave him a mission to do and he's pouting because he doesn't like the idea of doing what God has called him to do. In chapter one, God said to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Well, Jonah, he kind of crosses his arms and he says, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'll do anything else, but I'm not doing that. Like if, if you want to talk to the Ninevites, you can go yourself or you can send some other representative, but I'm not going, it's not going to me. Go do it yourself. What an audacious thing to say. A created being saying to the creator, I'm not going to do what you ask me to do. It's almost like spitting in God's face. He says, I'm not doing it. And so what's the reason? Why doesn't Jonah want to go? What have we said so far? Well, the Ninevites, right? He doesn't want to go because of the Ninevites. The Ninevites are, they're nasty. They're vile. They're disgusting. They're the most ruthless criminals at this point on earth. They would as, just as well kill you as have a conversation with you. Actually, if Netflix were looking to do a new documentary, this would be the new multi-million dollar series right here. Nineveh, the fear of nations, right? The fear of nations. Because in a documentary like this, it would showcase the criminals, the criminals who deserve to be on death row for killing people. And we want to see those interviews and talk about their ruthless nature. They'll talk about their childhoods and how they grew up and where was dad and where was mom in the picture. What were you thinking when you did this? What was the mindset? And, and, and people would tune into something like that. It's a docu-series on Nineveh. And Jonah knows this. Jonah knows this about the Ninevites. They aren't just ruthless, but they're a threat to Jewish society as well. Right, remember, because they're up on the northern border and they can attack down south anytime that they want to. And they are, are reigning, they are ruthless and they're taking control. And when they take over, they, they dominate the society that they, that they take over and now their ways become the ways of the land. And so they don't worship Yahweh God. They don't worship the creator. They worship multiple gods. And so it is a threat to their society as well. And so Jonah can't stand that. So why doesn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Well, I think he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want them to hear that judgment is coming. Because if they didn't hear that judgment's coming, they're not going to get a chance to repent. Isn't that evil? I mean, that's like ruthless. He knows that there's a message of salvation, but yet they aren't going to receive it because Jonah doesn't want to go. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament in Isaiah 52 and Romans 10, they borrow from the same language or Paul in Romans borrows from what Isaiah says in chapter 52. He's, they, they both talk about how beautiful, on the, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. 
And that good news that Isaiah talked about and that good news that, that Paul brings out in Romans is salvation. It's that your God reigns. It's that there would be peace. The good news is that there is salvation available for anybody who would confess and repent. God's mercy and grace will flow like a river to anybody who wants to cry out to him. That is what that passage in Isaiah means and in Romans. But if they don't repent, then they, can't, then, then they would get smoked. And that's what Jonah wants. He thinks they deserve wrath. He thinks they deserve punishment. He doesn't think that they deserve grace. And so he doesn't want to tell them about this. But I think there's also another piece that's at work here too. He doesn't want them to repent, but I also think that he doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news. Doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news. Um, uh, guys, most normal people, I want to say normal, okay? Most normal people don't like to be the person who tells somebody bad news. If you love telling people bad news, Man, like, like, let's do a heart check. Let's, let's have a conversation, right? But normally you go and you tell somebody, like, hey, I've got, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. You don't really want to tell people the bad news. You want to tell them the good news. The person always wants the bad news first so they can wrap up with the good news. But nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news. Why is that? Well, first of all, it's just awkward, isn't it? Like, it's hard to tell somebody something that's difficult and hard that's going to be hard in their life. Um, man, did you see the game last night? Yeah, like, how do you jump into a conversation like this? Did you see the game? Uh, yeah, that was nuts. Like, how'd they come back from it? Like, what about the wheels on your car? Like, how the wheels on your car? Hey, by the way, I just found out I got your cancer results and you're gonna be dying next week. Like, how do you jump into hard news and different? Nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news because it's just not easy to talk about. It, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's uneasy. It's awkward. Uh, but it's more than just awkward. When you have to tell somebody bad news, it's easy to get mad at the person who's, giving the bad news. Have you ever heard of the saying, hey, don't shoot the messenger here? Like, like I, I'm just telling you what somebody else told me. I'm just delivering a message. Don't get mad at me. Um, don't shoot the messenger. Sometimes people get just as mad at the messenger as they do at the person who is giving the bad news. And if you have a difficult, under, a difficult time understanding that, think about the repo shows that are on television. Like dude shows up to take back your motorcycle or, or your, your four-wheeler or your car and like guy comes running out of the house and ready to beat down the guy who's taking the car. He's like, man, I'm not the one who didn't pay the bill. I'm not the one who said this has got to come back. I'm just here to deliver a message and take it back. And they're ready to throw down, right? The person who delivers the bad news often is the receiver of all the brunt and aggression. My wife is a nurse and she's a fantastic nurse. And to become a nurse, you've got to do a lot of incredibly hard schooling to do that. Are there any nurses in here in the room right now? None. Okay. Nurses do a fantastic job. I'm thankful to God for them. Um, but they have an incredibly hard job. Uh, they have to go through a lot of hard schooling. They've got to do hundreds of hours of clinicals. Uh, and then at the end, they have to take and they have to pass a huge test called the Inclux test in order to practice their nursing. So in other words, you can pass all of your schooling and you get to the end to take this test. And if you can't pass that test, you don't get to be a nurse. And you get several times to take it or whatnot, but you have to pass it in order pr to practice nursing. And so it ends up being a pretty intimidating test. And so thankfully she passed hers with flying colors and her friend um, was taking it as well. And her friend asked her if she would be the one to receive the results of her test after she took it because she just couldn't bear opening it up and looking at it. 
Okay, and so Ashley uh, said, like, fantastic, I can do that because you're awesome. This girl is a great nurse. She's one of our best friends. And so Ashley's like, there is no chance that this girl is not going to pass this test. And so the results come in. They come in on the computer. And so you got to log in and get it. And she opens it up, and she didn't pass. So how do you tell your best friend that they didn't pass this test that's going to change their life? And so she's wondering, she's in tears because uh, she doesn't know how she's going to deliver this bad news. She's afraid that it's going to negatively affect their friendship and that she's going to receive the brunt of the hurt or not the aggression in this, but just the sadness of what that person is going to feel. No one likes to be the bearer of bad news. Good news is she ended up passing it. She's been a fantastic nurse, flight nurse, NICU nurse. Awesome. You'd want her to care for you when you're in the hospital. But for Jonah, there is certainly a sense of self-protection here, right? He doesn't want to go because there's some self-protecting things here. If I go to these vile and nasty people and say, hey, in 40 days, y'all who think that you're tough and you guys are about to get your butts whooped and you're going to be overthrown by a power, a force that is so much greater than you. You know, you know what's going to happen to me if I do that? They're going to come and they're going to take me out. They're going to kill me and they're going to go hang me out in the street as an example for everybody else to never come in and say anything negative to us. I'm going to be the example. No, thank you. I'm not doing that. Jonah has an evangelistic call here from God to go share a very real message to very real people who if they were to die in that very moment, they would die and they would go to a very literal hell. They would be very separated forever from God because their choices had led them away from God. Not towards him, but away from him. Billy Graham lived his entire life going and telling this story from city to city to city. There is a God that you need to know. There is sin in our heart that needs to be dealt with and he can do it through his son, Jesus. This is what he did. Do they deserve it? For sure, they deserve the wrath that's coming. But this wasn't God's heart for them. God's heart was for them to repent so that they can receive grace. This is serious business. Eternal lives are on the line here in Nineveh. And instead of thinking about people dying without a chance to repent, Jonah's more concerned about his own life. He's not concerned about Nineveh. He's not concerned about them dying and being separated from God forever. He's concerned about his own life. Y'all probably like, well, you know, bro, I think I'd do the same thing. I mean, if that were me, and that was a situation that, that I was put in, I mean, I, no, nobody's walking into a death trap like that. Nobody wants to go in when you know that you're about to get smoked by somebody. And so we would resonate with Jonah and say, like, I'd probably be in that, that place too. We know how Jonah would be feeling because most of us would kind of be acting the same way if we're being honest. It's them or me. And in this particular case, hey, I love people and all, but I would love my life a little bit more. If you're a believer in Jesus and you've been for any time at all, you likely know that in Christ, we've been given a mission. We've been given the Great Commission, Matthew 28. It's been given in other places too. But Jesus tells us that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them, and bringing them up, helping them to mature. This is the mission that God has given to us. And part of that call is a sense that there is bad news, that we've got to understand that there's bad news, that we have good news to tell in Jesus, amen? We have good news to tell in Jesus, but in order to hear the good news, people have to know why it's such good news. Why does Jesus change things? 
Why does he make all things new? Why do I need to know about him and accept him into my life? It's good news because we were all dying in our sin until Jesus came and goes to a cross and takes away our sin. But if we confess our sin, John tells us in 1 John, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God. Thank God that he sends Jesus. In other words, what John was saying is that he changes our destiny. He changes our forever. He changes eternity for us. We were in darkness. We were living in darkness. We were heading towards darkness. This was what our life was. And in Christ, he's taken us out of that darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of light, which is his son, Jesus. He's given us hope where there was once hopelessness. And he's given us future when there was once no future. He's given us Jesus. And he's given us true life that we might live in him. And so we're given a mission in Jesus to call people to confess that they are a sinner in need of Jesus and to call them to repentance. That's how people come to Christ. It's not because they figure out some kind of loophole, some back door to Christ. Like if I could just get everything right, if I could say the right words, if I could find the right key, then maybe I could come in to the door. If I just do enough, maybe I can make it. That's not how it works. People come to Christ because they realize and they recognize there is a stain of sin in their life that they can't get, they can't get rid of. There is no um, uh, magic eraser that can erase the sin out of your life. The only way that that sin is removed is by the blood of Jesus, what he's done on the cross for you. You cannot do that on your own. There's no magic eraser for that. We need Jesus to remove it. It's not going to happen because as, as believers in this room, if we beat them over the head with everything that we know, Right? That's what we want to do. We want to beat them into submission so they'll trust Christ. But it's going to happen because we tell them the bad news so that they can see the good news that Jesus can change things. John said, or Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full, that you might have it abundantly. Jesus says in John Chapter 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. There's no back door. It's only through him. He is the reliever of the bad news so that you might have good news in Christ. And so as believers, we have a call on our lives to help people see that. Nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news. Nobody wants to talk about the sin stuff. We just want to talk about Jesus coming in. But they, people have to understand their sin. People, we have to give the bad news so that people can see just how good the good news is. Death to life, dark to light, chains to freedom. But how often do you and I find ourselves in a seat of Jonah? Either we think that certain people don't deserve us spending our time and going after them, or we find ourselves that we're just maybe a little bit more concerned with ourselves and how people are going to think about us. That's introspection to happen. You're like, why sometimes don't we go? Why don't we say, what's the fear in our heart? I'm, I'm going to feel awkward. I'm not going to know how to defend the faith that I say that I believe. I'm not going to know how to um, defend um, the scriptures. I might lose something here. Uh, maybe I lose a friendship if I speak up. Maybe I lose a relationship. Maybe even my life if we're talking about extreme situations. So again, Jonah, he's not really out there on an island all by himself. We're sitting in a lawn chair right there beside of him. This is our story too. This is a struggle that we feel every single day. And we want to watch something here in the text. So many of us think that we have to be great. We have to have eloquent words to say. We have to get the formula just right. 
But God doesn't need us to be great. He doesn't need us to be perfect. He just wants us to be obedient. Um, and he can do so much with so little. Look at verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and, and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he didn't do it. Huh, what a turn of events. What a change of pace here. So Jonah, he spit out of this large fish creature, whale thing, whatever was in the ocean that he gets swallowed by, he spit out onto the shoreline. And let's say, okay, Jonah, he got uh, on a boat in Joppa, and his plan was that he was heading towards Tarshish, which was a long way away to the end of the earth, and now he ends up 550 miles away now, and not in Tarshish, but in Nineveh. Now that's a 550 miles, that would be a long ride in a fish, would it not? For perspective, though, I think one minute would be a long ride in a fish. Um, not sure how that would pan out. I'm just saying. But in this scenario, okay, Nineveh is not near the water. Nineveh is on land here. And so it very well could have been that Jonah will spit right back out in the exact same place that he started. <laughs> he gets on the boat in Joppa, tries to go to Tarshish, and he ends up riding a well all the way back to the same spot that he started so that he might have a second chance. In verse 1, this is Jonah's second chance. He's living on grace. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is his second chance, okay? Anybody in here living on a second chance, need a second chance? Like second chance obedience, right? Like we all, like the, like the train of obedience went by the first time and we like didn't get on it. We're like, hey, wait, like I, I need something. And then it comes back around like, oh, okay, I get it now. I'll, I'll get on the obedience train. And so we live on second and third and fourth chance obedience. Like we do this with our kids, right? Our kids disobey and, and, and we're like, hey, get it right. Stop doing that. And like they're still doing like, hey, I'm going to give you a second chance. Stop doing that. Don't make me count one, two, two and a half. Two. Like you're just giving them chance after chance because you just want them to do the right thing. Jonah's on a second chance and God is expecting him this time to do the right thing. But I want to say something here. Just because we don't want to do something, this is, this, is, this is life, okay? Just because we don't want to do something doesn't mean that God changes his mind or his requirement on this. 
Just because you don't want to do something that you don't like or go somewhere that God wants you to go or obey a law in in the scriptures or just because you want to go rogue and do your own thing, it doesn't mean that God is going to change his standard or his requirement. It stays the same. God had told Jonah to go to Nineveh and gave him this message to tell. And sometimes... When, when we receive the consequence for some sin in our life, like we ride the consequence out, we're like, okay, I made it through, I'm done, I'm, I, the consequence is done, but now I can just keep doing what I was doing. No, that's not how this works. Like you don't just receive the consequence and just assume that now God is okay now that the consequence is done. That we can just keep going against his will, but sometimes we live like that. Jonah didn't do it. Right? He did not do what God called him to do. He got thrown overboard. He spent a few days in the belly of a fish. He confessed. He repented. And when he gets spit out, guess what happens? The mission that God gave him was the exact same mission after the consequence. The requirement, the standard, the mission, it did not change. God does not change his standard or his law like this. He is relenting, he is forgiving. He gives us Jesus and pulls back because we put on the righteousness of Jesus. But he is unrelenting in his character and his standard for what is right and wrong. And so he calls Jonah to the exact same mission that he left him with. God still wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach. Guys, our disobedience, it doesn't change God. God's relentless grace and his love, it changes us. Have you ever seen the effect that a river has on rocks? Over time, like you look at the Colorado River, it carves through the mountains, it carves through the rock, and you can see where it's been working and just thousands of miles of this thing and where it has been constantly moving. The rocks around it are are no longer sharp, but aren't they smooth? The rough edges has been smoothed out, and this is how God works in our life. He doesn't change, but his love and his grace and his mercy over time, it smooths us out and it changes us. Look at verse Three, um, there's no messing around this time for Jonah. Verse three, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in, in breath here. And, and here's where we get our first look of how big the city really is. Um, the scriptures say that it's like a three days journey from one side to the other. Scholars believe that the inner city of Nineveh was somewhere between two to three miles long. So that's, that's inner city Nineveh. But including all of the outlying um, villages taking in, the, let's call them the suburbs, all the little areas outside around Nineveh that would be brought in and taxed for their purposes, right? We're talking about maybe 30 to 56 miles that Nineveh's ground expanded. And so to some degree, Jonah has to cover this this ground. Verse four tells us that this is the message and how Jonah goes about doing it. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh's gonna be overthrown. Now, he goes a day's journey into the city. Let's ask the question, how far is a day's journey? Well, we don't know exactly how far that is, But let's say that Jonah here, he gets to the heart of the city. He doesn't just get out of a fish and hit the shoreline and then yell out, God's coming, you better get ready for it, prepare yourselves, and then get back in the fish and say, hey, hit the gas, we gotta get out of here, or they're coming. This isn't how Jonah rolls. He's in the heart of the city here where everything goes down. 
Okay, now again, we're talking about Nineveh. Nasty, vile Nineveh. This is where murder happens, where rape happens, idol worship, human sacrifices, orgies to the gods, living in the marketplace, everything that goes on in the marketplace. This is the kind of stuff that makes us shudder. And this is in the heart of the city. Jonah right now, he's not on the fringes where nobody is. He's in the thick of it inside the city. Then here's the message that he gives. Yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. All of your evil, all that you've done, judgment is coming your way. Uh, A lot of scholars think that Jonah would have had an itinerary when he was going into the city, that there were certain places that he would have needed to hit in order to have maximum impact on on the nation, right? And so he would have gone with all those city gates that are in that huge wall that's surrounding Nineveh that we talked about a month ago or so, that there would have been many gates. And so he would have gone to those gates and he would have talked to people coming in and out that were surrounding the city gate, that he would have gone to the temples where there was idol worship happening. And he would have proclaimed this message, message that God had given him, hey, repent, Judgment is coming your way. Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And then he would have gone uh, from person to person if necessary. But he was going to where people were. He's speaking and he's going at a time of day where it's not just crickets, where there's nobody to hear, where there's no challenge. He's going where there's going to be a challenge. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine taking Jonah's job, going into Nineveh? Anybody's palm sweating just thinking about doing something like that? Because isn't it the same message that God calls us to do? To go make disciples. And he sends you into the workplace. He sends you outside of your region. He sends us overseas. He sends us to places that we may never go. For Jonah, this would have been like heading into the inner city of L.A., into the inner city of Chicago or Philadelphia where gangs and drugs and crime and debauchery where it's everywhere. It'd be like going overseas into the red light district. It'd have been like going overseas uh, to where there are people who don't believe like us, think like us, who want to kill us. It'd be like stepping into those areas and saying, you know what, everything that you're doing is wrong. That's why Jonah, one of the reasons Jonah doesn't want to go there. It's like pulling a megaphone out and just walking through the city saying, God is coming, repent, or your life is gonna be much shorter than you intended. What kind of nerves would that take? That's like nerves of steel, right? And not only would it take nerves, but it take a conviction of what's right and what's wrong, knowing that you're heading in the right direction, having a belief to stand on what God has called you to stand on. Like you've likely heard of the, the, the movie that's out right now, Sound of Freedom, or maybe you've gone and seen it and all the sex trafficking and how, how that's being addressed. And um, this is like, it takes guts to do something like that. It takes nerves of steel to some extent, but you know what it takes more than that? To say solid truths and difficult situations? It takes obedience. It just takes, it takes obedience. Not really being concerned with the outcome of your own life, but being concerned with the outcome of somebody else's life. And that scares us to death sometimes because we think that we've gotta be great or we gotta have the right things to say. We gotta protect ourselves. We gotta get it just right. But the truth is, God doesn't need us to be great. He doesn't need us to be perfect. He just needs us to be obedient. Jonah here is a second chance prophet, right? He's a second chance prophet who was just on the heels of being done with God. He was running away from him. And yet he pulls him back and said, you're not done. That's not great. It's obedient. 
It's not great. Jonah doesn't have great words to say. It's just obedient. Do you know that the message that God gave Jonah to say in the, in the Hebrew, it's only like five or six words. It's not this huge, like Peter, like you're reading in Acts, he's got these huge siloquies and these long sermons and whatnot. And you're like, yeah, I know, I'm familiar with those. But like for him, for Jonah, this is five to six words. And those five to six words are gonna ring out into eternity because look at the results in verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. <gasps> they believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. You know what that means? Their heart has been turned. There's repentance that takes place. And in a minute, we're gonna see God relent of the anger that he was getting ready to pour out on them. Five words, not greatness out of Jonah, just simply five words. The greatness was God using those, those five words that he gave him. And then you have in verse five through nine, the king finds out about this and he leads a national repentance. He calls people to repent and to cry out to God. Maybe um, God might show them mercy. Maybe he might show grace. Maybe he might give forgiveness. You know what this is like? This is like uh, the president of the United States issuing a decree that gets path passed by both major parties. Now that never happens, right? That is very difficult to happen. It passes the Senate, it passes the House, it doesn't get struck down. And the decree says that everyone is to turn from their wicked ways and to turn towards God. Coming from the top down, president turning, Senate turning, House turning, the United States turning their eyes towards Jesus. Can you imagine that? Holy cow! Five words in Nineveh, and the whole nation turns. Not great words, but a great God who uses those words to make an impact. <laughs> no one wants to be the bearer of bad news and say the bad thing, but you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be eloquent in saying those things. You don't have to be great. You just have to be obedient. And then God changes a whole nation with those words. Sometimes the most simple and the most unassuming words can be the most profound and life-changing. God doesn't need your eloquent speech. He doesn't need us to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, but he chooses to use us anyway. Instead, what he does is he invites us to lend our voice to his message and join him in his work that he's doing. It's like us, like a child going to work with their dad or with their father, learning how to speak like he speaks around people learning how to say what needs to be said, learning how to, to do what needs to be done, just watching the Father. You know, Jonah's simple obedience brings about a salvation for an entire city, an entire nation. I wanna read a quick story for you about the power of, of one word. It's by uh, a guy named General William Booth, or it's about General William Booth, and um, it's called the one word telegram. I don't know if you've heard about it before. Um, it may or may not be totally historical, but it's true uh, either way that it lands. Um, and so here, here's the story. I think it's got a significance to it. Uh, it was Christmas Eve, 1910. General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army was an invalid and near the end of his life. It was impossible for him to attend the army's annual convention. Some, someone near the general suggested that Booth send a telegram to read at the opening of the convention to the many Salvation Army soldiers in attendance as an encouragement for their many hours of labor serving others throughout the holidays in the cold winter months. Booth agreed. 
Funds were limited and telegrams were charged by the word. And so to ensure as much money as possible would still go to help the needy, General Booth decided to send a one-word message. He searched his mind and reviewed his years of ministry, seeking the one word that would summarize his life, the mission of the army, and encourage the soldiers to continue on. When the thousands of delegates met, the moderator announced that Booth couldn't be present due to his failing health. Gloom and pessimism swept across the convention, the convention floor, until the moderator announced that Booth had sent a telegram to be read at the start of the first session. He opened the message and, and read just one word, others, others, signed General Booth. It's the nature of Jesus. Not to be concerned about yourself and your own welfare, but maybe the life of somebody else. If you know Jesus, to care about somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And so the challenge is to think about what are the few words that we have in our voice? What are the things that come off of, of our tongue? What one word or what handful of words will we say for Jesus? Will we say anything for, for Jesus? What's your word? Say it. Speak it. Be obedient with it. But here's the deal. We're never going to say that word. Or we're never going to stand up like this. If we don't first believe that sin's a big deal, then that really is that bad. That hell really is that bad. But God's grace is so much greater and that it's so much better than what the alternative is. And we want people to experience the love, grace, mercy, and truth of Jesus in their life. Never gonna happen until that captures our heart. And can I just give you a word to take with you this morning? We're wrapping up. Give you one word. Well, actually a couple words. Don't try to be great, just be obedient. Just be obedient. God's gonna handle the greatness. So don't worry about trying to be perfect. You're already perfected in Christ. Don't worry about trying to get all the right words in place. Greatness is gonna come through Jesus. He's gonna use your words. He's gonna use your voice. He can handle it. And so your one word, obedient. Just be obedient. Would you pray with me? Father, it's one word, but oh my goodness, is it hard? Because we wanna buck against you. We wanna do our own thing. We wanna fulfill our own desires, but we pray that your heart would be our heart, that we would be obedient to what you've called us to, that we would live a life that is chasing after you and not running away from you. And Father, we know that that doesn't happen on our own. We need your spirit to do work inside of us to smooth our heart, to be like a river flowing through our heart and just smooth off the rough edges. If there's somebody in the room who's never trusted you, the work that needs to be done is that they need to just bow at your feet and trust Jesus. Lay their sin at your feet, confess, Lord, I am a sinner and, and I need Jesus and then live with you. So I pray for men and women in the room who's never trusted you, that today would be that day that, they, that, that their step of obedience is trusting Jesus. For the follower of Christ, as we talked about earlier, that maybe a step of obedience is baptism. Maybe a step of obedience is living out life with your family and, and moving towards them. And maybe a step of obedience is stopping that thing that's going on at work that you know is not right. Maybe a step of obedience 
is that, that thing that is taking us away from Jesus. And so God, would you remove that thing from us? As believers, would you draw our hearts towards you and, and what we want and what we need from your spirit, God, is you to move us towards obedience. Whatever that looks like today, this week, help us make that step, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.